Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's readings come from The Old Church Clock by Richard Parkinson. This book visits the early 1900s England and the importance of the church and its members. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. Each episode is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to iTunes listener Natala Mama for your lovely review. I'm glad the podcast is helping you get back into your bedtime routine. I'll do my best to stay boring. The podcast is completely free and it's the support from listeners that allows me to keep bringing out more episodes. If the podcast helps you, Please subscribe and leave a review. It really does help out. You can also say hello at boreyoutosleep.com where you can support the podcast. And if you also want to say hello, I'm now on Twitter and Instagram at boreyoutosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. The Old Church Clock by Richard Parkinson Introduction A brief history of the following homely little tale may perhaps be not less interesting and more edifying than the tale itself. It was written originally for the pages of the Christian Magazine, a cheap monthly publication intended for circulation, especially in the manufacturing districts, which is under the management of a young clerical friend who deserves the highest praise for the energy with which he commenced and the zeal and judgment with which he has hitherto conducted it. Like many more important events, the following story, which commenced almost in jest, has ended almost in earnest. It was not at first proposed that it should extend beyond three or four chapters, but having nearly by accident carried his hero into the north for a birthplace, a train of associations was awakened of which the author could not forego the record. Though by birth and descent a native of Lancashire, 
He had resided long enough in the region of the English lakes to become enamoured with its wild and romantic scenes, and intimately acquainted with the manners and mode of thinking of its inhabitants, and among other charms of that sequestered district, not least grateful to his imagination, was the character of Robert Walker. For so long, a period incumbent of one of the most retired and romantic portions even of that primitive country. Nor was it merely as an exemplary parish priest, and well does Robert Walker deserve the title of Priest of the Lakes, as that of Apostle of the North has been assigned to Bernard Gilpin, that the character of this good man is to be regarded, but as one striking instance out of many, if the history of our parish priesthood could now be written, in which the true liturgical teaching of the church was strictly maintained in the lower ranks of the ministry when it had been either totally discontinued or had withered down into a mere lifeless form in the higher. It cannot be denied that corruption began from above. Secular patronage and loose foreign notions and manners first influencing those in station and authority and then naturally descending downwards into the ranks of the church, thus gradually corrupting the whole mass to such an extent that the chastisements which she has since received from the whips and scorns of dissent became as wholesome as it was deserved. Now in the author's mind there was an apostolical succession of duty as well as office in Robert Walker which convinced him and consoled him with the thought that there was nothing in the church system itself which necessarily led to that deadness in herself and activity and success in those who dissented from her which it was too often his lot to witness during the first days of his ministry. No doubt hundreds of the brethren can look back, each to his Robert Walker in his own district, by whose light his path was cheered when all else seemed dark around him. The history of Robert Walker, however, is calculated to teach a much more important lesson than this. 
although it be one which seems so obvious to reason, that it could hardly have been expected that any example should be required, even to enforce it. It appears quite evident at the first glance that as faith can only be illustrated, proved and confirmed by good works, so doctrine can only be impressed, engrafted, and made practical by discipline. It is true that it may be conveyed into the mind and painted on the imagination by district and impressive oral teaching alone, but it can only become useful and even intelligible to the great masses of men by their being required to show by some outward act of their own that they understand its utility and make a personal application of the truths which it conveys. When our Saviour himself combined, never to be separated, outward acts and observances with inward graces in the two holy sacraments of his religion, he taught us at once by precept and example that even the most solemn and mysterious doctrines of his church can only be properly impressed on the heart and understanding by the observance of some corresponding and outward act as at once a sign of obedience and a channel of further grace. This is the system on which our prayer book is constructed. Are men to pray? It tells them when and how. Are they to believe certain facts in their religion? It impresses them on the heart and memory by periodical commemorations. Are they to believe certain doctrines? It brings these prominently forth at fixed times and seasons, and so on. Doctrine and discipline with the church go hand in hand. Like faith and practice, the result of both. Now all this seems so reasonable that it might hardly appear to require the test of experience to give it further sanction. Yet to that test we may fairly appeal and the author has in his own mind been constantly in the habit of doing so by cheering history of Robert Walker. Let us first look at the opposite side of the picture. In the illustrious instance of Newton, the pious, laborious and eloquent minister of Olney, 
Here is a favorable specimen of the system of spreading the gospel by instructing the mind and sanctifying the feelings of the hearer, principally by oral teaching, without laying much stress upon the necessity for prescribed outward observances. Yet what is the result? No one can read Cowper's beautiful letters with regard to that place and time, and not be painfully convinced of the evanescent nature of all impressions, which are merely made by individual teaching on individual minds, without some external bond of union by which a religious society may be held together when the hand that first combined it has been withdrawn, and some supply of fuel to rouse and rekindle the slumbering embers when the first light has been extinguished or removed. Thus nearly all traces of the teachings of that good man disappeared almost as soon as his warning voice had ceased to sound in the ears of his at the time willing hearers. But how different has been the result in the case of the liturgical teaching and prayer book discipline of the humble Robert Walker. Even in his native valleys, not only pious remembrance of his character, but a willing obedience to his precepts still lingers. But especially in his descendants, numerous and scattered and often in humble circumstances as they are found to be, it is there that we find as we might most expect to find, the impress of his character, deeply the author hopes, indelibly impressed, and showing itself in a manner most edifying to the observer, and most confirmatory of the far-seeing wisdom with which our own church's system of discipline has been constructed. It has been the author's good fortune, at different periods of his life, to see or to hear of various members of this favoured family, in almost every variety of station to which one single race can well be supposed liable. But the result of his observation has been always the same. Walker's great-grandson, the Reverend Robert Banford, vicar of Bishopton, who first brought this venerable patriarch into notice beyond the boundaries of the native hills by a sketch of his character in the columns of the Christian Remembrancer, though partial attention has been paid many years 
previously been drawn to him by some letters in the annual register. Although, he was himself a clergyman of the highest character and promise. One of Walker's daughters, Mrs. Borrowdale, who became a resident of Liverpool, retained to the last the habits of the obedience to the prayer book, which she has been taught in youth and attended the daily service of St. Thomas's in that town, till it finally expired for want of the rubrical number of worshippers. But by a singular coincidence, the author was brought into contact with this family in a way still more interesting to himself, and gladly would he wish to convey to his readers' minds that sympathy with his feelings which is necessary to enter fully into the moral of this little narrative. The author some years ago was presented by a friend to a living and found there a curate one who had married the great-granddaughter of Robert Walker. Here generations had passed away between the early stock and the last shoot of the tree, yet the connection between the two was by no means disserved. The tree might still be known by its fruit. She was one, we may speak freely of the dead, as they then become the common property of the church. She was one whom it was not possible to know and not to love. With the liberal education which a town residence affords, she yet retrained much of the freshness of manner and unaffected simplicity of address, which belonged to the better educated class of females in a country place and which win the heart more than the finest polish of artificial manners. Her real anxiety for the comfort and pleasure of others, and total forgetness of self, formed that higher species of flattery which no one can resist. While her attention to domestic duties her care for the poor and her punctual observance of religious services combined to render her all that one wishes to find in that most important of all stations, a curate's wife. She was proud in the best sense of the word of her descent from Robert Walker and Robert Walker would have been proud of her. She was so attached to the place, and a less promising or more laborious post could hardly be conceived, that she had often been heard to declare that nothing should remove her from it, 
even should any chance deprive them of the curacy. At length the author resolved to resign the living, and among other reasons for doing so, was that he might be instrumental in procuring the succession to it for those who were well so worthy to hold it. But alas, how mysterious are the ways of providence. She who had looked up to this event as the highest point of her earthly ambition was destined never to enjoy the object of her hopes. Within a very few weeks after his resignation, she was taken off by immediate stroke of death, by a complaint of which she had long entertained reasonable fears. Yet she died as she had lived, in the service of her master and his church. She was found by her husband with the prayer book beside her, open at the place where she had only just been hearing about a child, a boy of eight years old, read aloud to her. According to her custom, the service for the day Thus departed a true descendant of Robert Walker. Thus the author's leave-taking of his late flock was converted into a funeral sermon. He need not add what topics would naturally suggest themselves as appropriate to the melancholy occasion. The author has thus put the reader in possession of some of the reasons why the character of Robert Walker should have been one of especial interest to himself, and he now only has to explain the artifice which has been employed in order that the public might have it before them in all its beauty. It is well known to all the readers of Wordsworth that in addition to the sketch which he has drawn of this primitive pastor in his great poem of the excursion, he has in his notes to his sonnets on the River Duddon given a prose history of his life from material supplied by the family in language of the utmost simplicity and beauty, this little memoir is, of course, locked up from the generality of readers in the somewhat costly volumes of Mr. Wordsworth's works, and the author has often wished that it were reprinted in a separate form. For general perusal, or as a great man's records of a good man's life. Happening then, as has already been said, to place the birth of his hero in the north, the thought occurred to him so far to attempt a sketch of the character of Robert Walker 
as to justify him in his own eyes in presenting to the poet the request, even now an unreasonable one, that he would permit his own true story of the patriarch to accompany this little narrative into the world. With this request, Mr. Wordsworth has kindly complied, thus conferring on the author a favour in addition to many others previously received, and affording to his reader the comfortable assurance that in purchasing this otherwise meagre production, he will at least receive in the following memoir alone something well worth his money. The author has only to add that this little sketch at the conclusion of the tale of the late Reverend Joshua Brooks, chaplain of the Collegiate Church, may probably look like a caricature to all except those who knew him, now that the publication is no longer anonymous and those two characters in the dialogue are both alike imaginary. From Mr. Wordsworth's notes to his series of sonnets on the River Duddon, the reader who may have been interested in the foregoing sonnets, which together may be considered as a poem, will not be displeased to find in this place a prose account of the Duddon, extracted from the Green's Comprehensive Guide to the Lakes, lately published. The road leading from Coniston to Bruffton is over high ground and commands a view of the River Duddon, which at high water is a grand sight, having the beautiful and fertile lands of Lancashire and Cumberland stretching each way from its margin. In this extensive view, the face of nature is displayed in a wonderful variety of hill and dale, wooded grounds and buildings amongst the latter. Bruffton Tower, seated on the crown of a hill, rising elegantly from the valley, is an object of extraordinary interest. Fertility on each side is gradually diminished and lost in the superior heights of Blackcomb, in Cumberland and the high lands between Kirkby and Ulverstone. The road from Brofton to Seathwaite is on the banks of the Duddon, and on its Lancashire side of it is a various elevations. The river is an amusing companion, one while brawling and tumbling over rocky precipices, until the agitated water becomes again calm by arriving at a smoother, and less precipitous bed, but its course is soon again ruffled, and the current thrown into every variety of foam which the rocky channel of a river can give to the water.
Vide Green's guide to the lakes. After all, the traveller would be most gratified who should approach this beautiful stream, neither at its source, as is done in the sonnets, nor from its termination, but from Coniston over Walnascar, first ascending into a little circular valley, a collateral compartment of the long winding vale through which flows the Duddon, this recess towards the close of September, when the aftergrass of the meadows is still of a fresh green, with the leaves of many of the trees faded, but perhaps none falling is truly enchanting. At a point elevated enough to show the various objects in the valley, and not so high as to diminish their importance, the stranger will instinctively halt. On the foreground, little below the most favourable station, a rude footbridge is thrown over the bed of the noisy brook foaming by the wayside. Russet and craggy hills of bold and varied outline surround the level valley, which is besprinkled with grey rocks plumed with birch trees. A few homesteads are interspersed in some places peeping out from among the rocks like hermitages, whose site has been chosen for the benefit of sunshine as well as shelter. In other instances, the dwelling house, barn and byre compose together a cruciform structure, which, with its embowering trees and the ivy clothing part of the walls and roof like a fleece, call to mind the remains of an ancient abbey. Time in most cases, and nature everywhere, have given a sanctity to the humble works of man that are scattered over this peaceful retirement. Hence a harmony of tone and colour, a perfection and consummation of beauty, which would have been marred had the aim or purpose interfered with the course of convenience, utility or necessity. This unvitiated region stands in no need of the veil of twilight to soften or disguise its features. As it glistens in the morning sunshine, it would fill the spectator's heart with gladsomeness. Looking from our chosen station, he would feel an impatience to rove among its pathways, to be greeted by the milkmaid, to wander from house to house, exchanging good morrows as he passed the open doors. But at evening, when the sun is set and the pearly light gleams from the western quarter of the sky, with an unanswering light from the smooth surface of the meadows, when the trees are dusky, but each kind still distinguishable, 
when the cool air has condensed the blue smoke rising from the cottage chimneys, when the dark mossy stones seem to sleep in the bed of the foaming brook then, he would be unwilling to move forward, not less from a reluctance to relinquish what he beholds, than from an apprehension of disturbing, by his approach, the quietness beneath him. Issuing from the plain of this valley, the brook descends in a rapid torrent, passing by the churchyard of Seathwaite. The traveller is thus conducted at once into the midst of the wild and beautiful scenery, which gave occasion to the sonnets from the 14th to the 20th inclusive. From the point where the Seathwaite Brook joins the Duddon is a view upwards into the pass through which the river makes its way into the plain of Donadale. The perpendicular rock on the right bears the ancient British name of the pen. The one opposite is called Wallabarrow Crag, a name that occurs in several places to designate rocks of the same character. The chaotic aspect of the scene is well marked by the expression of a stranger who strolled out while dinner was preparing and at his return being asked by his host what way had he been wandering, replied, as far as it is finished. The bed of the Duddon is here strewn with large fragments of rocks fallen from aloft, which, as Mr. Green truly says, are happily adapted to the many-shaped waterfalls, or rather water breaks, for none of them are high, displayed in the short space of half a mile. That there is some hazard in frequenting these desolate places, I myself have had proof. For one night an immense mass of rock fell upon the very spot with a friend. I had lingered the day before. The concussion, says Mr. Green, speaking of the event, for he also, in the practice of his art, on that day sat exposed for a still longer time to the same peril, was heard not without alarm by the neighbouring shepherds, but to return to Seathwaite churchyard, it contains the following inscription, in memory of the Reverend Robert Walker, who died the 25th of June, 1802, in the 93rd year of his age and 67th of his curacy at Seathwaite. Also of Anne, his wife, who died the 28th of January in 93rd year of her age. In the parish register of Seathwaite Chapel is this notice. Buried June 28th, the Reverend Robert Walker, 
He was curate of Seathwaite sixty-six years. He was a man singular for his temperance, industry and integrity. This individual is the pastor alluded to in the 18th sonnet as a worthy compere of the country parson of Chaucer and in the seventh book of the excursion an abstract of his character is given beginning a priest abides before whose life such doubts fall to the ground and some account of his life for it is worthy of being recorded will not be out of place here and that concludes tonight's readings I hope you're feeling a little drowsy now and if you're not quite there yet then please feel free to listen to another episode I look forward to bringing you a new episode very soon until then good night